So we're a small group gathered on an auspicious occasion. It reminds me of the uh, time when uh, I wasn't there, but a couple of devotees were seated on the veranda of Pujapad Sridharmarja along with him in the evening, and he was speaking about uh, Prabhupada, hmm? about, uh, and the two, two devotees were disciples of Prabhupada. And um, and they expressed something to the extent that in his talks they felt the prophet's presence. And he told the story of the Alwars who were held up in a cave during the monsoon. Alwars were the mystic poets that were the precursors to the Acharya Ramanuja who articulated their insights and so forth into the doctrine of Vishishta Dvaita another school of Vaishnavism and hold up there in the night, they uh, discussed about uh, Hari, and and amongst them they acknowledged the fourth person who was present, something like that. So, Bhujapadrita um, Maharaj expressed that he that he felt that he had invoked the presence of Prabhupada. In the discussion, the devotees were feeling so small, small group, um, but a powerful subject, <laughs> an important, uh, such an important person in our lives and really in the world. Bhaktivinoda Thakur's appearance. We only say a few words tonight, but um, some maybe some history of his early uh, life uh, that we can relate to to some extent. We think of him as the great um, Thakur and Acharya that he that he is. But uh, in his own telling that came about through a humble uh, beginning. He was uh, appeared in the world in 18, September 2nd, 1838. So that's about How many years? 178 years, I think. Seems like a long time, huh? But he seems, at least in my generation, so close. I try to extend him to you all in the next generation as well. Great, great grandfather, I guess, huh? would be to all of you, and a great grandfather to me, spiritually. <clears throat> And the uh, kind of the founder of our our party bar, as 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 conceived by his most prominent uh, student and son, Bhagisanand Sastri Thakur Prabhupada. So, eighteen thirty eight, he was born in in Birnagar in Nadia, district of Bengal. Hmm? At his 
maternal grandmother's house. His father was in Orissa at the time because his grandfather had run into some financial difficulty and his father had gone there to to help him and possibly relocate. And so, third son he was. He had two older brothers, Abhay Kali and Kali Prasanna. Later he had a younger, two younger brothers, Haridas and Goridas, and a younger sister, Hemalata. And they lived in Bengal and in an area uh, called Ula that uh, was very well-to-do at the time. In fact, Bhaktivinoda Thakur was... There were five Kayasta families that were the main families in that um, area. Kayastas were a type of... um, Clerics who um, attained socially a position similar to to uh, of respectability similar to the Brahmins, and um, there were five dominant families spreading throughout, <laughs> populating the area and so forth. And I think uh, that uh, forget his name, but Dutta was the family name in Purushottam Datta. And he was one of the five who became the leading, you know, the father <laughs> of the of all the families, so to speak. Uh, they give it a mafia kind of <laughs> terminology, but they were pious people, of course. And um, and uh, in, his, in his family, they worshipped Jagadatri or, or Durga. And uh, Bhaktivinoda tells of his early days in Ula as being very, very um, festive and during the annual Durga Puja, they would, Puja they would, which is a big festival in Bengal, there were 35 or 40 Brahmins who would come and, and worship the deity, big deity cast in eight metals and and, um, and there would be such festive singing and feasting and everyone in Ula was from Bhaktivinotakras estimation and experience as a child, very happy and well-to-do and had no no cares, practically. Hmm? Um, he said of himself that uh, he was born at a good weight, but a little bit ugly. <laughs> That's how he described himself. <laughs> and his mother said, anyway, he, he's maybe a good boy, he can serve the others. <laughs> and... Um, as it uh, turned out, he became um, a, a good uh, good student. Went to several different uh, schools, and um, had uh, expressed also in his autobiographical notes the um, uh, some interesting anecdotes about his school life and the teachers and and so on and so forth, and their way of teaching and correcting children, let's say it's much different than we would, would be allowed today, uh, that was quite normal there. He said if you were the first one to school, they would, they, the teacher would beat the older students, and the older students would then be his 
assistants who would teach, and they would carry it on just like the cow, little cow beats up, gets beaten up, and then gets in a bigger, gets in a small herd, and she becomes uh, the ruler and so forth. So the older boys would punish the young boys. He was the young boy, and if they would come one day late, they would uh, one, one one the first one who came would be, get beaten once, the second one would twice, and the third one three times, and so forth and so on. So it's rather strict and uh, and um, unpleasant, but he persevered in his uh, schooling. He said that his younger brother Haridas couldn't, couldn't tolerate it, and the uh, the older boys just tell some anecdotes, just like I said, appear into his life as he speaks about it, the, the life of the great Achari, who has no um, inhibitions about telling about everything about his life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, being at this point of the of the, of the uh, authoring of those that biographical note in a, in a in fully realized transcendental position, he could look back at his material life and not and have any egoic identification with it and hide the bad parts or the good parts and embellish the good parts and so forth. Very candid um, look into his life. This is an autobiographical notes that he wrote to his uh, son. Elite Prashad had been preserved, mm-hmm. has been preserved. And um, this is just one of the stories that I re- remember from there that, uh, that the, the older boys would uh, reward the younger boys if the younger boys brought things from their home to please the teacher. Mm-hmm. And so he was, uh, he stole some jackfruit from 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 the family and brought it to the teacher. The boys, the boys gave it to the teacher. The teacher was very pleased with that. And it got found out at home that the jackfruit had been stolen and he was chastised for that. And they went to the teacher and chastised him and brought the jackfruit back <laughs> and uh, and so forth. And, uh, and uh, finally, the teacher was so oppressive that Haridas, the younger brother of Bhaktivinoda got a machete and came to his house while the teacher was sleeping. These were just kids. I mean, they were like five, six years old. And he was going to chastise the teacher. Bhaktivinoda took the machete from him and, and um, saved the teacher from that. The teacher then quit. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, <laughs> These are the kind of stories he tells about his uh, his, his his early life. Um, eventually, he was sent to Krishnagar for schooling, and there he became renowned for his learning, which was quite a pride to people of Ula and to his family and so forth. Um, and his aptitude for learning extended such that um, after school, an English school had been started by a Frenchman, in the area, and so he began to go to the English school in the, in the evenings or after school, after late afternoon, so he could learn English from the Frenchman, and uh, who took a liking to him and very much took him in under his wing and so forth. So he began to learn his English at a very um, early age, and um, eventually he um, expressed that. Uh, 
he began to have very uh, deep thoughts about the purpose and meaning of life. What is the world? Where does this come from? Why is it? And so forth. When he was about eight, ten years old, these questions would would preoccupy him, and uh, and uh, he would think about the world. He would look at the moon and see that it was moving as he moved, and he would make certain conclusions about it. And, what you know? What's going on? Examining nature and so forth. And he said, "Some days I thought I had all the answers, and some days I knew I had none." And, but in the early age, anyway, he expressed a deep, kind of penetrating, philosophical, kind of inquiring uh, nature. And um, of course, obviously, this carried him through his life and colored his learning that um, it, during which he always kept a religious bent of mind. He, um, the Durga Puja was, of course, a demigod worship, and there was a lot of that going on. And so he would, uh, in, his, in his childhood, he would go and examine the, the deities, and then when no one was around, he would say things to them, touch them, and then run away and thought, if they were real, they'll come and get me, and so forth, and they never responded. So he concluded the demigods weren't real. Hmm. <laughs> this is his, was his uh, con- conclusion. And um, when he had a conversation with uh, some gentleman who was a worshiper, the worshiper told him that actually you're right, the demigods aren't real hmm. in any meaningful sense. The only real god worth pondering and speaking to and and um, petitioning is Ishwar, hmm? and uh, and uh, he goes by different names. And he gave him the name Ram and Rahim and and God, uh, according to the Hindus, according to the Muslims, according to the uh, the Christians. Bhaktivinoda earlier on had been um, uh, told that. There was a certain kind of fruit that he said, without eating the fruit, you know, life's not worth living. Uh, I forget the name of it, but the tree was said to be inhabited by ghosts, so he was afraid to go there. And the, well, people were very superstitious, so they had all kinds of, you know, superstitions about ghosts and spirits and things and whatnot. And so he was intimidated by that. And then one, he met one tantric. You can imagine as a little kid, eight, nine years old, he's meeting these people and <laughs> discussing things with them and asking questions and so forth. Tantric told him, you chant the name of Ram and no ghosts will be able to affect you. So he, he tried it. He went to the ghost tree. You chanted the name of Ram. No ghosts came. He picked the fruit. And so he developed faith in Ram Nam. Hmm? So he used to chant Ram Nam. He said, wherever he went, hmm? wherever he walked, he would always chant Ram Nam. And then when he met this fellow, and this fellow said, the only true God is Ishwar, his name is Ram, his name is Rahim, his name is God, in the different faiths and so forth, then that confirmed in him further that his, his, his uh, faith in and the efficacy of Ram Nam. And that was the beginning, I guess, of his perennialist uh, kind of uh, perspective. He grew up in that, in, in, in a kind of a um, pluralistic religious um, culture with Christian influences, Muslim influences, varied Hindu influences, and so on and so forth. Hmm. 
he speaks about how he kind of gravitated, this is all before he's like even 12 years old, gravitated towards a somewhat of an impersonalist perspective, seeing all the, the different different religions as representative of one kind of impersonal force, but he didn't like that idea very much. He couldn't he didn't find comfort with that. He said he would sleep at night and dream that he was Ishwar and that he had made up the world hmm? and that it was actually false, hmm? and then which is a my body perspective. Hmm? <laughs> And that he, I am Brahman, I become Ishwar, and imagine the world, it's really false, and so forth. He said he would dream like that, he would wake up and realize that that's not true. That's not true. And so he, he retired that idea, and in a very kind of rudimentary way, he, he kept his religious faith and time. Um, he was sent to Calcutta to school, and at the age of 12, he was married to a five-year-old girl, which was customary at the time. He was still grown up, and they arranged the marriage for him, and they were concerned. They were, it was in Ula, in his village there, uh, there were problems that had been once very, very wealthy and very prosperous and very happy, but um, a plague came cholera, his brother died of, of, of cholera, his father died, um, and the family lost money and so forth. And what was a very prosperous um, and happy um, place of his childhood became very um, poor and uh, depressed and uh, and um, um, many people dying and so on and so forth. So um, his father sought to relocate in Calcutta. Eventually he was also sent to Calcutta for further schooling and there he began to interact with the religious public and so on and so forth. Um, So from that kind of humble beginning, eventually, of course, he got his full education and and, um, became a government minister, Magistrate, magistrate, judge in the British um, government, and um, and very much part of the Bhadralok or the kind of the uh, the Hindu intelligentsia of the time, the cultured people who would gather together and talk about the world and and the British influence and the Hindu scriptures and the Muslim sensibilities and how to make sense out of it all and so forth. And, Calcutta was very much the, I think it was the, really the British capital in uh, in India at the time. So the whole world was run by the British for the most part. They were the dominant country. The whole world was said at, at the time that the sun never set on the British Empire. It was so so far and wide that the sun was always shining at, you know, sometime in some part of the British Empire. And its capital in India which was a rich place, India, of um, resources and so forth for the British, was in Calcutta. So it was almost as if the whole world came to Calcutta. Hmm. This was just the, the, the turn of the uh, what the the, uh, the 20th century. Hmm. So Bhakti he was uh, by that time in the early, well, in early. 
even before that, I mean, in the, in the, in the 1800s, he had started authoring books and so forth, and his conversion to Vaishnavism was, be, was before the turn of the century, but um, in the late, mid to late 1800s. Uh, my point is that, that the whole world came to West Bengal, and the purpose for the whole world coming there was to meet Bhakti Vinodhava. <laughs> That's our perspective. Hmm? Who, by, uh, in due course, of course, became the great uh, Chaitanya Knight Vaishnava that we uh, know him to be, and by which, uh, through which we're we're connected with him. He really lived and embodied the uh, di- teachings of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in a dynamic sense. He sorted out there in the uh, in Calcutta the different religious cult- culture and cultural influences and basically he had exposure to them all. I mean the Western Christian, the Muslim, it's, uh, the, the two Islamic faiths and the Hinduism of course and in India you've got everything else. Jainism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, so on and so forth. Um, and you've got also the nature worship and so on like that. I did Native American ideas. So, but he was very exposed by God's arrangement to all the different currents. And uh, he sorted them out and, and embraced an inclusive perspective, and I should say the inclusive perspective ultimately that Gaudiya Vaishnavism is. Um, there's exclusive religious traditions and there's inclusive ones, and then there's the ones that try to be neither one of those. Uh, inclusive is sometimes thought to be bad but from an academic point of view because it includes everyone within yours and yours is still the best or something like that. But um, from our perspective, um, everything does fit nicely within Chaitanya. Uh, Vaishnavism has its place and, and for that matter, it's to be honored uh, for those who have whatever it is, faith in that particular, whether it be a different rasa or even a different uh, tradition if they follow it um, appropriately and so on and so forth. Um, so, um, inclusive if we look at it in, in a very beautiful um, way. Um, and so he ultimately embraced this uh, doctrine of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and uh, the love for the Bhagwat, which came to him um, in due course through his exposure eventually to Chaitanya Charitamrita, which casts the Bhagavatam in a certain, in a particular light, in the, in the most bright, brilliant and beautiful light, um, which arguably could be described as seeing the Bhagavatam, to use Prabhupada's phrase, as it is, as it really is. The cloud of the British misunderstanding and that of the Hindus as well with regard to the Bhagavat that, that allowed them to be intimidated by Victorian sensibilities um, that they uh, projected onto the Bhagavatam and therefore, therefore concluded that this was like the worst case scenario. God has become, so-called God is a, is a playboy. I mean, you can understand their sensibility. You hear about some guy living on an island, he's surrounded by other people's wives and so forth, and people call him God, you think, well, we'll write that guy off. And so the British did as well um, write off Krishna and Krishna Leela, and they intimidated many Hindus 
for that matter, also with their Victorian sensibilities, such that amongst many educated people in Bengal, it was thought that the Bhagavatam was some type of interpolated text and not an original sacred text that had any religious or spiritual power. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu had a very different idea, and obviously the contrast is powerful that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was the strictest of sannyasis. He was so strict in his sannyas um, dharma that as a young man at 25 years old, 24 and 25 years old, that stalwart old uh, sannyasis like Keshava Puri, Keshava Bharati, um, Brahmananda Bharati, Paramananda Puri, and so forth, they were like afraid of his, the measure of his renunciation. They were embarrassed by their own um, um, position in comparison. So his, his in Chaitanya Charitamrita, Krishnadas, Kaviraj Goswami is very um, um, concerned but accurately representing the, the measure and the, uh, of and the, the, the strictness of the adherence of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to the, to the sannyas dharma, which obviously is, in, is diametrically opposed to a, 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 a god who is immoral. Hmm? Um, and so, but then you have to put the two together. How could Chaitanya Mahaprabhu be meditating on, on, a, on a fake god who's running around with other people's wives and get the power, if you will, to be the kind of sannyasi that he was? Unless that playboy and his lovers are understood in a philosophical and theological light that underpins the entire story, for example, of the Rasalila, the center of the Bhagavatam. So that startling kind of contrast is a, is, is a cause for reconsidering what the Bhagavatam is, is saying. Of course, even if you just read the book, uh, you know, there's quite a bit of, obviously, philosophy and theology in it and so on and so forth, but you need to read it with, with, good, with good guidance. Um, it's, a, it's not an easy book. Uh, to learn the British, as I was saying the other night, I think on um, John Mostmi, Rod Ostmi, they came to England, to India, and one of the things that they wanted to do is to teach the savages the true religion of Christianity. And so they here they encountered a culture where people had, like, lots of scriptures in an ancient and sophisticated language. It wasn't exactly like pagan Europe, where you know you have witches and 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 uh, shamans and so forth, and it's not that they've got like uh, these uh, scholarly books and a, a sophisticated language and a theology and uh, philosophy and so forth and so on. So the one um, miracle of the resurrection of the Jesus and the one book, the Bible, as theological and as philosophical as it is in comparison perhaps to the pagan doctrines, um, um, had a good um, um, feel and a good environment for, uh, for conversion, hmm? power for, con- for conversion. 
And, and, and when it converted to the Caesar or the king, then it had more power to convert by the sword and so forth, and, uh, and, uh, and wealth, hmm? chicken in every pot. Uh, um, if you really love God, then you should be materially prosperous um, if you're worshiping the right God, something like that. So, but this you know, had a little harder time playing out in India where there are so many miracles and, and Jesus-like figures and, uh, and again, books and lots of books and uh, lots of philosophy, theology, and so forth, um, and an entirely different culture. So it was a, more of a task to convert the so-called heathens, and, um, and some scholars were commissioned to learn Sanskrit. But that's not, as I was saying the other night, all that one needs to understand the, the Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavatam, the Upanishads, just to learn Sanskrit, one has to study under a teacher, and and, um, and one has to serve. So, um, they had a superficial understanding, especially of uh, Krishna, Krishna Lila, which was the, probably the most popular. Ram Lila, Krishna Lila, most charming and popular, so... Uh, they made a, uh, a sustained attack on that, and Bhagavad himself expressed some, um, having been influenced by that, to disregard the Bhagavad probably without ever reading it, just having heard that it was like this, and this is what it was about, and so forth. But upon, as I say, encountering the Chaitanya Charitamrita, the life of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is, which is a book which is the distilled essence of the Bhagavatam, and in Bengali, mostly, with maybe 10% Sanskrit verses, pramana for the evidence from the, from the sacred texts to support the, the points of philosophy and theology of the Chaitanya Charitamrita. Anyway, he was taken by that, and, and then he looked at the Bhagavatam through the lens of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and developed such a love for it and converted, if you will, to Chaitanya Vaishnavism, and many leading thinkers, religious people, and Hindu um, uh, intelligentsia who were struggling with the the world which had come, as I say, the world had come to Bengal, and Bengal was trying to figure out their place in the world, if you will. And Amongst the leading religious figures, um, many of them were um, hoping that that Kedarnath Datta, Bhaktivinoda would would join their sect, the the Brahmo Samaj, the this one, that one, the Brahmakumaris, and uh, there's a bunch of them. But to their great surprise, he embraced Chaitanya Vaishnavism, which wasn't even in the mix. It wasn't even in the mix. And as I said before, Bhaktivinoda Thakur, upon understanding it, saw his task to, be, to, to bring Gaudiya Vaishnavism on the stage of the world religions. What part Hinduism would play on the stage with Islam and Christianity that were, were had and were ruling over India, hmm? 
how even Hinduism would get there uh, was questionable. Uh, and Hindus were trying to figure out how to add modern influences and Christian thought, perhaps. In they were they were they were Hindu groups that did away with Krishna of the Bhagavatam, only presented Krishna of the Bhagavad Gita, who's morally upright and and speaks the Upanishadic wisdom and so forth. And this way, they tried they modified and were influenced and trying to come up with a form of Hinduism that would be. Um, viable, if you will. And Bhakti Minotaka was trying to make Chaitanya Vaishnavism viable within Hinduism and make it bring it within as it where it belongs, but in the eyes of the public, in the circle of Vedanta and on the stage and center stage of the world uh, religions. And as I say, um, uh, really the whole world came to Bengal hmm, to give the the most uh, prominent uh, ambassador of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, Thakur Bhaktivinoda, the opportunity to w- w- that he wouldn't be troubled having to go here, there, and everywhere. The whole world came to his his doorstep hmm, to inform him about modern thinking, and that he might then speak and write about Gaudiya Vaishnavism in consideration of that, and in a way hmm, that would uh, bring new and educated, uh, from a worldly point of view, converts to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, which was uh, largely going on um, in the villages, in the Dhams, and um, not uh, in a way, as I say, that the educated public... Um, uh, uh, give it was inclined to give it much uh, credence. Hmm? So it was a big task, and obviously he was very um, successful in this. Um, the epithet that by which he became known, the seventh Goswami, was bestowed upon him by one of the leading uh, journalists of, uh, in Calcutta. So you can see how. Just to you know, give an idea, if if the New York Times wrote, and Swami Tripurari, you know, is the eighth, you know, whatever, <laughs> I'm not gonna say me, but somebody make make some uh, powerful uh, statement that was powerful uh, because, well, he's saying that Bhakti Vinod is seventh Goswami. He, he's doing what the six Goswamis did hundreds of years ago. Now in Bengal with his revival of the pastimes of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in the Dham of Navadweep, his books and so forth and so on, um, the way he wrote. And uh, uh, and so it's, it's a, just a very, very... Um, I'm just trying to give you some idea what a powerful statement it was in its time, from a worldly um, point of view, the prominence with which, uh, to which Gaudi Vaishnavas had risen in, King, in Bengal uh, was uh, in terms of getting the attention of educated people and the respect of educated people, which was then just setting the stage for it to go overseas, worldwide, and so forth. Um, this was, was considerable, and Bhakti Vinod Thakur was the uh, the uh, the person to whom, as I say, the world came to make that initially possible. He empowered his son, of course, to give some shape to his idea 
who then looked at different missions like Ram Krishna mission and so forth and fashioned his mission and his, uh, with missionaries like the Christians and to send them around the world and so they he hatched these preaching strategies for changing details in Gaudiya Vaishnavism for outreach and so forth and and so on, shocking the Gaudiya world and at the same time critiquing it and uh, for any measure of hypocrisy that was present within it and there was a fair amount because when you have a very high idea like Radha and Krishna's love and and you're um, at the bottom of the social ladder and have no caste and so you call yourself a Gaudiya and then um, there could be problems and, and, and there were so the, the moral fiber of the Gaudiya community was, in, was much in, in question um, in the minds of the educated and pious people. So, so much respectability, respectability he brought um, to, uh, to Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And, as I say, he empowered his son and prominent disciple Bhaktisiddhanta to give shape to it, who, together in conjunction with Bhaktivinoda and under the command of Bhaktivinoda, um, Bhaktisiddhanta hatched various strategies for its dissemination. And, I mean, we're not like prominent in the world. We're not getting write-ups in the New York Times or anything like that, but we're here. <laughs> we're, we're, it's alive and well um, out, outside of India, and, and there, there, are, there is theology, Gaudiya theology being written in English now, today, and so forth. And, um, and, and, you gotta, and that's... A, that's, that's mm, uh, I want to say that that is kind of the groundwork. I mean, Prabhupada was very um, intent on on that uh, the idea of publishing books um, in English and other Western languages of Gaudiya Vedanta, and, and so that literary legacy was very important to him for good reasons. So it is uh, going on in, in some respects. Uh, today and what he, Prabhupada, my Maharaj, brought as far as being an emissary of Bhaktivinoda to the world and spread out in a very broad way, in a very general way, is, is being churned in, in some quarters and distilled and is this, the, the, the depth of insight and the sweetness, the charm of Gaudiya Vaishnavism is... is, um, is uh, I want to say, again, being being churned, and we're still in very early <laughs> stages, if you will, of, see, of, of, of presenting to the world the, the, uh, the beauty and the, uh, the, the profundity and charm of the Eastern Savior, Shiman Chaitanya Dev. Hmm. So, it is to Bhaktivinoda Thakur, really, the world owes a great debt. He's a very... Um, um, Very uh, good choice, if you will, of a of a saint in our tradition to write about and to present to the world, given um, his background um, as a well, you know, with inclusive inclusive of childhood anecdotes and so forth, some of which I said there are many that he that he gives, but also in terms of his um, being a married man, fathering ten or twelve children working in the government of the British 
and so forth, and at the same time, authoring hundreds of books, poems, songs of Gaudiya Vaishnavas, some of them um, very deep uh, philosophically and comprehensive kind of presentation, condensation of the Goswami's writings, and then so many, so many songs and so forth. Uh, uh, um, it's amazing that how anybody could be a father of ten and hold a full-time job and do all of that at the same time. It's said that there was, I've told the story before, that that he, his work was not without some opposition, hmm? even within the Godia sector, because he was the beginning of the in like a needle at Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was like the out like a plow end of the... Uh, the, the story, but he, he was needling the community of uh, of, of Gaudiya Vaishnavism um, in terms of um, its uh, mis- authorities that misrep- were misrepresentative and so forth uh, of the tradition, and uh, and so he had some enemies and. There's this. There's a wonderful story in brief. Uh, I'll tell. I've told before of how he was. Um, uh, one of his enemies sought to defame him and hired people, people one or two or something like that, to stay up and observe him at night, peek in his windows or whatever, uh, and then you know find out some dirt on him and then you know share it with the public and so forth to defame him very offensive um, thing to do, but uh, what happened was that he, he tells um, his his daily schedule. I don't remember it per se, but he, he's practically up all, you know, when his business is finished, he takes his meal and it's his devotional studies till the wee hours, sleeps a couple hours up again and starts and so forth. So the, uh, the persons who were hired to defame him and find uh, some... Um, breach of moral character upon observing him for a week or two weeks couldn't find anything and they became his students. Mm -hmm. So he very much uh, did personify the the, um, idea of of teaching by precept as at while at the same time his precept was uh, was not considerable, but practically immeasurable. I mean, you can't count the number of uh, poems, songs, books that he wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, you know, you get this thing today, you get like, Prabhupada wrote the, all the books, you know, these are, anybody else wants to write a, a bridge book to bring you to Prabhupada's books, then it's okay. Outside of that, who could write anything? That kind of sensibility, a lot of Prabhupada's disciples have because of that they grew up with only having familiarity with Prabhupada and uh, and there was nobody else on the scene so to speak and his books were very powerful for them obviously for good reasons um, but it's it's it, there was a similar idea to put it in perspective after the passing of uh, Bhakti Siddhanta Bhakti Siddhanta did not write a lot of books because Bhakti Mila had written so many that they were trying to Print them in, in English and uh, and uh, and so forth. So they were, were busy with that. And after his departure, 
Prabhupada had written uh, maybe his commentary on a couple volumes of the Bhagavatam, he sought to have them published by one of the um, um, one of the missions representing Bhakti Siddhanta, and he, a prominent one. He was told, you know, our business is to publish Bhakti Vinod's books. So we're not. If we'll see about yours some other time. You know, this is this is the real thing. So it's the same. It didn't stop Prabhupada, obviously, from Prabhupada just dismissed him and went somewhere else and kept writing his books and and so they're celebrated by his disciples. But that lesson should be learned that uh, it should go on and uh, and this was the wish, uh, the passing wish of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarchitakra to keep the current of Bhakti Vinodakura alive. So so it's very uh, extraordinary to think about it how the whole world, really the whole world, uh, in as much as Britain was the ruling power of the world, the sun never set in the British Empire, came to Calcutta. The reason it came to Calcutta, the reason it its main center was in Calcutta, because Bhaktivinoda Thakur was there. And and he was the, the became the prominent representative of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, and his mission ordained by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself, by Krishna himself, was to interface with the modern world and make the sun never shine in the British Empire in terms of their ideology uh, and so forth. Uh, and let the, the, the golden opportunity that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's descent is all about, let the world be lit by that. And let it uh, illumine the, the atma, the soul of everyone in terms not only of its, its reality as a unit of Satchit Ananda, but its potential for, for Bhakti Ananda. Hmm. That's a huge, huge idea. And this, we, we are so fortunate to come in such a uh, lineage just now, uh, a couple of generations back, has been what we said 178 years since the appearance of Bhakti Manod. It seems long, but he seems, he seems close. So you want to keep him very close in the center of our um, efforts. Hmm. He's very uh, benevolent, um, generous, and as I say, a very good example of a person to to um, present in the modern world from the Gaudiya tradition because of his interfacing with modernity, his, again, being a householder, having so many children, important job in the in the in British government and, and so on and so forth and being a devotee at the same time really speaks to us of the power of bhakti which we talk about hmm? um, its power for example to um, be effective in household life and not require the pre uh, other qualifications than one's faith qualifications like celibacy and so on and so forth, are really required for yoga marg and gyan marg as they're traditionally presented in the text that, uh, the, the classic texts that represent them. So we, we, we may wonder sometimes, well, it's said that bhakti is powerful enough that householders can also practice and be successful, but, you know, it seems hard for them. And so, so we only need one example <laughs> to illustrate the, the, uh, the point. Hmm? 
and it's hard to find. We can reach back, of course, to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's time to find many examples, Advaita Acharya, Shiva's Thakur, and so forth. So, but these are distant people. They're historically uh, verifiable people, but they're still hundreds of years ago and seem more... Uh, more. They, they take on a more mythological type of um, inner subjective... Uh, realness hmm, than than a Bhakti Vinod who was right there. You could reach out and touch him only a hundred and hundred years ago. Hmm. Um, not sure the date that he left the world, but it might have been right around 1916, 12, 18, 15, something like that. Hmm, at that time, um, so about a hundred years ago, and of course we were touched by by his. Uh, um, successor and so forth and so on. So we're close in in that way. And um, but he is a very uh, uh, ideal, if you will, uh, person to popularize, to write about, to present to the world as a as a um, example of the uh, power and insight of of uh, of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And so it was. Um, for good reason that Dr. Siddhanta Sarsati Thakur told us, his, his disciples, and that passes on down to grand disciples and great, great grand, is it great, anyway, disciples, <laughs> great disciples like all of you, um, that, uh, that uh, we are members of the Bhakti Vinod Paribar, Bhakti Vinod Paribar Ki Jai. Takur Bhakti Vinod Avivar Bhamutsubhaki Jai. Oh, the Premanandi. Short talk. Any question?